And as I looked at that, I realized that um, that this was going to impact whoever was driving that car. And as I started to kind of process all of this, you know, the the, the grief and the sadness and me wanting to just be dead, mm-hmm. and you know that somebody else is now involved in this whole tragedy. Um, it was at that point that almost as if somebody was speaking over my shoulder, I, I heard in my mind the words, let it go. Um, it instantly, I, I just, I knew exactly what that meant. Hey, everyone. Hey. <laughs> this is Linda and Drew Scott. And this is our podcast, At Home. A show where we chat with artists, experts, leaders, dreamers, and doers on the impact that they're creating in the world. Through these conversations, we get to dive deeper into our relationships with ourselves, our communities, and our planet. In a sense, it's like we're designing our home. From the inside out, this is At Home. I'm excited. Over the next couple of weeks, we're actually starting 12 new houses for Property Brothers Forever Home, which is, it's always fun for us to meet the new families and work with them and help them have their dream home. Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing that you all have been able to do that. And yeah, it's always fun to meet the families and, and give back. There's a unique story with every single family, which is always fun to figure out how can this house maximize their use of the place, whether it's function or style, whether it's the safety of the home. I like hearing the family stories mm-hmm. more so than the, I mean, the design's amazing, but I love hearing about the families and how they've come together and and how they just work with the communities around them, um, where they came from. I, I just All the families look different. What's so interesting for me is that every story is so unique. You know, sometimes different designs can look somewhat similar but their stories are never similar. And so that's always exciting to be brought into their world to be able to help them have something that they thought they could ever have. And speaking of family and how every family's story and journeys are different, today we get to chat with Chris Williams, a devoted father, a physician, and author of his book, Just Let Go. Chris recounts his tragic story where his life changed forever when his wife, their unborn baby, and two of his children were killed by a drunk driver. He shares how he made the most important decision of his life to forgive the 17-year-old drunk driver of the other vehicle. This is a story ultimately of love and forgiveness, and we hope it brings some perspective into your lives. We know it sure did for us. This is Chris Williams. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. (laughs) My security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not mine. Help protect what matters most with all this, plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. So great to have you here. And we've we've heard your story and it's it, it makes me speechless. And you've been so eloquent um, in all the conversations we've heard you talk about 
the tragedy that that has happened in your life. But first, can you share a bit about your childhood and just tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. So born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, went to uh, Skyland High School. My life was all about football. Um, football just every year. Um, growing up to the little mighty mites and gremlins, etc. And uh, But I also wanted to be a physician at the time. And uh, so I, I uh, 16, I was able to secure a job as an orderly at LDS Hospital in Salt Lake City. So this is the Trauma One facility, uh, the premier kind of place to be if you want to uh, learn about uh, becoming a physician. Jeez, uh, at 16? At 16. Yeah. Oh so gosh. just, the, the, you know, I'm standing inches away from open heart surgeries, right? You know, because you're kind of a gopher as an orderly getting blood and other supplies. So very responsible position as a 16 wow. year old. But uh, an interesting experience that I think kind of shaped who I who I became happened on my way to work. I'd, I'd just been there um, and I just had my license for like five months, five, six months. And uh, as I was a couple blocks away from the hospital to try and find a place to park, a little boy darted out in between two parked cars and right in the path of my car. And, uh, and I struck him. I didn't see him, but um, I heard the sound of him hitting my car. And of course, the police came and ambulances, emergency crew came, put me in the back of a police car to, to, uh, while they investigated what had happened. And, mm. and it took a long time for them to investigate. And I saw at one point they were lifting up the front of my car. And so when a policeman finally came in to ask, you know, all the questions, how fast was I going? You know, have I taken anything, <laughs> drunk anything? Which, you know, I had not. Um, you know, I grabbed his arm before he left and said, well, you know, that boy, I, I hope he's okay, right? Um, while the attention on my car, and he said, there's a four-year-old boy trapped in the wheel well of your car and we are trying to get him out. Oh and that God. just absolutely, I, I thought my life was over. I thought that that was it, <laughs> that uh, I, I felt absolutely and utterly alone. You know, I felt like um, that there was no path forward, that the light in my life, all my hopes, dreams, expectations for everything I wanted had just ceased. Um, fortunately, there was, you know, and I don't know to this day who it was, but there was a woman that was there that, that while this was all transpiring, she saw me in the back of the police car, knowing that I was in pain, you know, absolute emotional pain. Um, she knocked on the window, opened the door and, and asked if she could pray for me. And so just as a religious person, I mean, not really terribly religious as a 16-year-old, not understanding fully what, what religion was all about and, and, and not having much of a testimony or a faith tradition, but just her notion that, um, that there was a belief system, there's a way forward, that I could rely on the things that I had learned up to that point um, uh, as a Christian, that, that, that it gave me hope. Um, it was amazing how it just all of a sudden just turned the light on in the back of that car just to help me understand that, you know, even though I may not know how I was going to move forward or, or what the path would look like, that there was a path forward. It wasn't as dark and as bleak as, as I thought it was at that moment. Mm. So after they uh, finished up, um, you know, the, the whole the scene and, and they transported the four-year-old up to a primary children's hospital to, to work on him, um, it came time for the, my car to be moved. You know, they had put it back down. They, it was still just in the middle of the street because they had closed the street off but they needed my car to be moved so they could then open up the street. And my father wanted me to drive the car. Mm. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, that was one of those things I, I just, yeah. in the moment there, I, that, I never wanted to drive a car again. Mm. And my father said something. So he said, when the horse bucks you off, you've got to get back on and keep mm. riding. 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't, you know, I, I don't know that he was much of a, an equestrian, really, <laughs> but I understood what he was saying. My dad that- literally has given me that exact same, because my dad is an old <laughs> cowboy. He is an equestrian, and he gave me that exact same encouragement as a kid. So, yeah. But, but, but I understood. I knew exactly what he was talking about. That, I mean, it's, it's to, to think that I would never drive a car again the rest of my life was was silly. And so, um, so yeah, he, he gave me the keys, and he waited patiently while I got in the car, started it up, and drove the block that I needed to finish that uh, commute that day. I didn't go to work that day, but they, um, but I did continue working there. And that was also at his uh, urging as well. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of back to that notion that, you know, when I, I got bucked off, I mean, everything I had expected suddenly was gone. And, you know, to his credit, he just pushed me to, to get back on that horse, the horse of my dreams and my desires and my, my work and everything I was, was, was pressing forward towards. Uh, he helped me tremendously to, to do that, to pick it all back up, to realize that, you know, there wasn't the end, that there was still light at the end of that tunnel that, uh, uh, of my life and that I could keep stepping forward and moving forward in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was important because a couple of days later, I, I was told by my father that that boy passed away. And that was a tremendous amount of weight that suddenly fell on my shoulders, knowing that, you know, my actions, even though they were absolutely accidental, I wasn't, you know, under the influence of anything. It was, I was just trying to be a responsible 16-year-old. Even though my actions that day had caused the, the life of this little four-year-old boy, um, it was a weight of, of grief and pain, but it was also a weight of I wanted that experience not to be for naught. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to mean something. So, so as a 16 year old boy, I, I suddenly had an anchor to, um, to a purpose in my life that, you know, regardless of what field I chose to pursue or, or what ambitions or, or what I decided to do with my life, I wanted to make sure that it represented a tribute to that four year old boy. Was there at any point as you started to embrace your Christianity as well, that you were thinking, how could God let this happen to a four year old child, someone who's so innocent, how could this happen um, and how did you help yourself through that sort of a situation or mindset? Absolutely. So, so formally, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, Jesus Christ being, as a Christian, him, him being the focal point, uh, when I did ask that question and kind of went to the scriptures, went to like the New Testament, et cetera, I realized that here was, uh, you know, that here I am professing to believe in an individual who suffered perhaps more unjustly than anyone has ever suffered. And so I think it put me in my place. I think those days when I felt like, you know, how could he let this happen to me? How could he put me in that situation? Here, I'm just trying to be a good kid. And then this happens to me. Um, Rather than kind of shaking the fist at heaven, I realized that, you know, I have a belief in somebody that, that suffered far more than I've ever been asked to suffer. And in fact, if anything, the, um, you know, that gospel that he represents is that he will take that suffering from me if I, if I let him uh, have it. And so it really, it really turned me around in, the, in those moments of, of character weakness that I, I have plenty of in my life. Mm-hmm. It, it allowed me the chance to stop whining, stop shaking the fist at heaven and realize that, you know, I have actually been very, very blessed. Um, I, you know, th- that was a very, it was a, it was a difficult tragedy to go through. But mm-hmm. if I look at the, the people that I've been able to help and the, and the growth that I've experienced because of what I was allowed to go through, um, it's it's immeasurable. It's a it's mm-hmm. made me who I am, and so now many years past that that sixteen year old experience, mm-hmm. if I were to go back and and be told I could do it all over again, but this time without that experience happening, kind of wave the magic wand and, and get a, a redo, 
I would be very scared to say, yeah, I want it done a different way. I, I don't know that I would want to lose the lessons I've learned yeah. and the growth that I've experienced and the people that I've been able to help that have been in similar situations. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would want to lose that authenticity. No, yeah, no, yeah. I hear you 100%. And do you mind describing what happened in 2007? And I'm only connecting this because you do talk about how that event when you were 16 did teach you to have more empathy um, in 2007. Absolutely. So in 2007, I've got a, a, a wife of nearly 18 and a half years, the, the former Michelle Doherty, uh, just the love of my life. I've got mm-hmm. uh, four children. Uh, the last was born in 2000. So here you are, we are in 2000. 2007, and we were anxiously expecting our fifth child to be born to us uh, in the May of 2007. But in February, as uh, three of my children and my wife and I are in a car just going out to get a treat after having dinner, uh, we're passing under an underpass in Salt Lake City. It's um, For those who live in Salt Lake, it's fairly uh, well known. But it's an underpass that is, um, it obscures the traffic that's coming your way until you're kind of down passing under the, uh, under the freeway. And so as we started to progress under the freeway at night uh, on a busy road, I see a pair of headlights coming at us at nearly freeway speeds. It's a 35 mile an hour zone. And and they estimate that the car was coming at us at about 72 miles an hour. Mm. Um, Fast enough and with the limited amount of of ability to uh, adjust my driving, there was really nothing I could do. Mm. That before I could kind of go left or right, um, we were T-boned. And the, the car actually crossed both lanes um, into our lane and then went into the shoulder and then quickly veered back to, uh, um, to hit us on our passenger side. And so um, my wife was killed instantly. Um, and two of the uh, three children that were seated in the back were killed instantly as well. Um, I was desperately trying to feel for a pulse on my wife and I couldn't feel for one. I saw that she had a significant injury on the side of her, uh, on her elbow that was not bleeding. Uh, if, if working as an orderly in a hospital taught me anything, that, that it was that if you've got a significant wound like that that's not, uh, that's not bleeding, that is a very bad sign. Uh, my son had a significant head wound that he had sustained that once again wasn't bleeding as well. If you've ever cut your head, you know that those, those bleed pretty profusely. Uh, yeah. So that was a very bad sign. Um, just the weight of, of not only the, and shock, of not only just kind of trying to process what had just happened to us. I mean, we had just gone from this happy, wonderful moment going to get a treat um, with most of my family. And then all of a sudden this, this crash and there I am stunned um, in the front seat. I mean, I, I, I kind of came to it aware, even while the, the imploded front windshield was still kind of falling back to the ground and just actually it just exploded. Um, and, and so it was a very surreal experience, a shocking experience, but, the grief that came to my heart as I just was desperately trying to find out if if my wife was still with me or if my kids were still with me was overwhelming. Um, it was like beyond a panic. It was, I think what I had experienced as a 60-year-old times 100, if not more. It was just an absolute desperation to, to realizing that, um, and trying to figure out if this was even real. I mean, had yeah. this just happened, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, Interestingly enough, my, my daughter, I could see her um, just barely. I was, wasn't able to move very much, um, you know, having been hit so significantly. But her hair was just draped over her face, um, and I couldn't see any injury on her. But there was also a, a presence. There was just something in that car that day that just helped me understand that my wife, and the baby she was carrying, and my son Benjamin and my daughter Anna were gone. Um, 
I remember as people started to come and look through the windows at what had just happened to see if there was anything they could do, uh, they didn't try and do any kind of emergency work on my wife or my children. Um, you could, I could hear the, the horror in their voices as they said, oh, there's children inside. Oh, and, and crying out and people asking people to call 911. At that point, um, I just remember clutching my wife's hand and putting my head back against the headrest and trying to will my spirit out of its body. I mean, I, I, it, it, I, there was such soul-compressing grief in that instant that um, I did not want to take another step forward. I didn't want to take another breath. I wanted to go and follow her wherever she was going and with my kids as well. I just, it was just a horrific experience being there uh, and trying to process the death of, of not just a spouse, but three children or two and, and the expectation of one that my wife was carrying carrying right. it was absolutely overwhelming um and as i as i did that i i lost i couldn't hear the people outside anymore i couldn't hear the the, the tumult all i could hear was just this groan um and what's interesting is as i was just trying to put my head against the, the, the rear of the seat and try to force my spirit on the body that the groan became louder and louder and it started to almost be irritating it's like mm. who is making that noise mm. it needs to stop immediately and i realized it was me just this it was it was the most heart-wrenching sad sound that that i had ever heard it was even now looking you know in my memory looking back at that moment it was so interesting just to hear that sadness when I was trying to process my own sadness and then putting mm. the two together, realizing that's me, I, I, uh, I, you know, I am absolutely undone. I'm devastated. At what point did you find out what actually happened? So it wasn't until I was in the emergency room. Uh, so, so they came, they extracted me out of the car. They got my son, Sam, who was seated directly behind me out. Um, and they took him to primary children's. They took me to uh, uh, the university hospital. Um, and it wasn't until I was on the on the gurney in the emergency room, as the surgeons were all trying to find out if I had internal bleeding, they were doing all these tests on me that uh, that a neighbor who was driving right behind our car and had saw it all happen, they saw the teenager that had struck us um, get out of his car and kind of stumble away, and so they realized that uh, he had been driving drunk, um, and that was confirmed by the police that also showed up and, and were there. So by the time they came up to the emergency room after having followed the uh, ambulance up. Uh, he was the first one to tell me that it was a 17-year-old young man that was driving that uh, had struck us. And, and did he he flee the scene originally? Did he? he? He did. He walked off about four blocks. He just kind of stumbled mm-hmm. and then went down um, into the neighborhood. Yeah. And I just wanted to go back to the groaning that you didn't realize was yourself. And, you know, I have heard there is some instinctual thing within humans or and animals that like there is there is a sound of grief, you know, and it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's just like pains my heart. But do you remember what you were saying to yourself at that time when you realized what your body was going through? Um, you, you talk about hearing a voice as well. Was it at that moment or or was it after? So it was right after that. So, so in that, you know, trying to figure out what that, who's making that sound and then trying to get it to stop. And then once I re- kind of realized it was me, it, you know, it was, it was just so sad. It was such a, such a horrible experience as I described. At that point, that's when I looked out my window and I saw the car that had struck us. So at this point, not knowing who had struck us or what their circumstances were, I did see that there was a car overturned. It was up on its, uh, on its roof, uh, about 80 to 100 feet up 
the road from from where our car um, stopped. And as I looked at that, I realized that um, that this was going to impact whoever was driving that car. And as I started to kind of process all of this, you know, the the, the grief and the sadness and me wanting to just be dead, mm-hmm. and you know that somebody else is now involved in this whole tragedy. Um, it was at that point that almost as if somebody was speaking over my shoulder, I, I heard in my mind the words, let it go. Um, it instantly, I, I just, I knew exactly what that meant. And I don't know if it was the years of processing the accident as a 16 year old or, or just, you know, trying to live a Christian life or, um, you know, you're reading so many times that we need to forgive others uh, and then let it go that um, if, if I tried to heal on my own or tried to uh, hold this against that person, whoever was driving that other car, that it would just absolutely be, destroy me. Um, but, but there was just a synthesis of all of that experience with the notion that that, that was right. That mm. Those three words indicated to me that that was exactly what I needed to do, is to let it go. And yes. it, was, it, it was an immediate commitment as I sat there to do it, to just say yes. Mm. That is my path forward. I've got to let this go. From that moment, you, so you don't even know who the other driver is and you've internally made this decision to let it go. But then you're in the hospital and you're in emergency and then you find out it was a drunk driver, a drunk teenager. I, I would think just innately as humans, there will be that emotional moment again, like this person has completely ruined my life in a state of drunkenness and anger and other emotions coming out. Was there a moment where you forgot the commitment you made to yourself to let it go, and then you had to sort of uh, re-embrace that thought? No, in fact, if, if anything, that was probably one of the greatest blessings um, for me to move forward was, you know, in that moment, having committed to let it go in the car, while I'm on the gurney in the emergency room, you know, neck in a brace, um, I'm still in significant pain too. I've got, you know, fluid coming into my lungs. I, I hurt everywhere, Um and that's when my, my friend tells me that it was a 17-year-old boy, that the first thing I, I asked him is, is he okay? Mm. And I think he was kind of taken aback by that. I think most of the people in that room were taken aback by that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just remember not wanting that young man to be in the pain that I was in. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, that, that just sounds too superhuman. They're like, who does that? <laughs> right. who, who in that situation would ever want something good for the other person? But I think it for me, it's just back to that study I did of, of, of Christ is that he, he did it for us. And, and so if I was to, to remain true to what I really believe, what I profess to believe, then I, in a sense, I kind of needed to join him. You know, the, the suffering he went through was so that we could not suffer. You know, p- perhaps in that moment, the suffering I was going through was so that this young man could not suffer and make something of his life. Um, and so, after I was told that he was that that he was okay um, by my friend, I then requested that my friend ask people to pray for him. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted for him in that moment. I wanted this young man to to be able to move forward and see the light after such a horrible tragedy a, 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 mm-hmm. and a horrible mistake, um, a very, very bad choice that he had made, mm-hmm. but, to, but to have a, a path forward. And, and maybe it was a way of paying it forward from what that, that woman so many years ago had done for yeah. me, that you know, in my time of grief, in my time of, of even though, once again, you know, I wasn't drinking, 
Um, it was a, a, just an absolute accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a similar way, I just didn't want his life to be over. I didn't want really anyone's life to be over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. B- because for me, that let it go was a moment of, of clarity and that I realized that, that, that this accident was going to mean something to me and to my family, mm-hmm. to, to the neighborhood, <laughs> to this young man, to his mm-hmm. family. And I guess that's really what the choice was, is what, what did I want this to mean? Mm-hmm. Did I want it to mean that this is a chance to really, to get tough with drunk criminals, to, uh, you know, to, to get angry with people that, that hurt us? Did I want that to be the, the legacy mm-hmm. of what yeah. I had just experienced? Or, yeah. or is there a better legacy that I could leave? So that was the beginning of that choice and journey. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. And, and what does it mean uh, to be able to tell the story and, and share that story of what you have learned from loss? I would hope that for those who are <laughs> trying to forgive or try to let it go as well, that they would realize that they have an opportunity to demonstrate a legacy of control. Um, and that's something that would span every faith tradition, every, uh, you know, even those who are non-believers or, or anything. I mean, mm-hmm. because I think too many people equate forgiveness with, with a religious uh, tone. It's not. If you want to experience control back in your life and have ultimate control, um, being able to exercise your ability to choose in the toughest and most difficult of situations mm-hmm. and to preserve that, ex- that ability to choose in the toughest and most difficult of circumstances is the ultimate victory over self, the ultimate victory over uh, our weaknesses, over this life. It's the, it's, I think it's the ultimate expression of victory of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I would hope that people took from that. As I look back on that moment in, in 2007, that's what that's become to, to me, is I chose in that moment how my kids were going to move forward and heal. I chose how I was going to move forward and heal. Mm-hmm. And I chose how I wanted the community to choose mm-hmm. to move forward and heal. Now well, I don't have control over everyone, but but by and large, that's how people have done it. When they heard my desire to kind of let it go, they've they've done it as well. And I think that's the thing that um, really drew us into your to your story in your book is the fact that it's it's you know forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things to practice, and setting that example for people almost makes it a little easier for other people to follow suit in the sense that okay, well. Here's, here's somebody who went through something extremely tragic and extremely difficult and you were still able to forgive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, it, it can give us all a little perspective. Yeah, definitely. That There's a huge lesson here of, of forgiving and having agency in, in the choices you make and you know what reactions and what energy you give to, to situations. You make it so effortless. I'm sure it did not obviously come without pain. Um, are there any tools that you can offer to those you know, going through something, anything big or small, uh, to get to a place of forgiveness or, or letting things go. Absolutely. Um, so your comment about the pain is is uh, very timely in the discussion because, yeah, you know, making the decision did not uh, prevent me from from suffering tremendous grief. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, uh, that that grief I felt in the car, I mean, boy, it came back the that evening. It came back the mm-hmm. next morning. I mean, it was just this um, absolute roller coaster of emotions, of of pain, of grief, of sadness, of anger, of of hope, mm-hmm. of you know. Re- so, so a couple of things. The first is that you know, once I made that decision to let it go, um, I committed that if I did go through powerful emotions that I would not direct them towards the young man. Mm. In fact, I did the, the opposite for this young man. I, I, I did what we do in society with people who make poor decisions is that we put them in a box and either it's a penitentiary or a jail or mm. a, a detention center. I mean, we, we, t- we take people, we remove them from society, we put them in a box and then justice can kind of you know, execute uh, his or her, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever against them. Right. And, and it's out of our hands at that point. So I did the same thing with the young man. I, I, I put him in a box and then I shut it and I sealed it as hard as you can seal anything. And then I tucked it away in the farthest part of my, of my mind. And that was important for me because if I did get sad or if I did have anger or grief or anything else, I didn't want that young man to be a part of it. Mm. And that might sound like, oh, wait a minute, that's not really forgiveness. I'm like, well, no, it's absolutely forgiveness. It's, it's back to that control is I wanted to cr- control completely my grieving, my anger, my, my healing. Um, and I wanted to make sure that those who were involved in that were the people that I wanted and I admitted mm. into that circle of, of trust. Mm. <laughs> so, so it was my friends, it was my family, it was my, the faith mm. leaders. Those are the people that were not in the box. That you know, When I went through ex- those tough, difficult experiences, um, that's who I wanted there to hear my soul's complaint. That's who I wanted there to hear of, of my grief and my sadness. Um, I didn't want it involving that young man whatsoever. And that was critical for the, the healing process because it helped me to, uh, to have some very sweet moments of grief, to have some very tender moments of, of longing and, um, boy, for my children and for my wife. And, and because those inevitably um, entail memories. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. so angry or sad, but I'm also remembering my wife and, and the experiences we had. I mean, the last thing I would want in that is to have those memories tainted by the, the memory of this young man. So, right. so that was one thing um, that was very important was to, to have him in a box. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing that was so very critical was to realize that there is something about being too sad or too angry or, or too grief-filled. Um, I used to play a, a game, Microsoft Flight Simulator, <laughs> when I was a kid. And, and as you flew mm-hmm. the little planes around, um, as you went in like towards a mountain or something, you would hear the, the instrumentation say, pull up, pull up. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I, I'm not a pilot, right? So I, I'm assuming that's, that's real, <laughs> that they have the little yeah. voice that tells you to pull up. But um, as I would get too sad and too down and too despondent, in my mind, I heard that voice. I just remember just that I needed to pull up, that... I needed to find a, a path forward that 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 wasn't so grief filled that mm-hmm. you know I was back in that the police car as a sixteen year old thinking there is absolutely no path forward. Mm-hmm. I needed to have those times when I could pull up, look at the sun, look at the sky, look at whatever, and just realize, okay, there's you know I I can do this. I can keep moving forward. So mm-hmm. very important. With the um, the young man Cameron who was driving uh, that, that struck your family uh, your vehicle. What's your relationship with Cameron now? So uh, about a year after the, the crash, um, and to help him with his moving forward and, and um, his rehabilitation, his counselor that he had been working with reached out and just said, hey, would you be interested in meeting with Cameron? 
which was a that was kind of a fascinating conversation because I hadn't revisited that box at all. I mean, I didn't even really know where he was or or what was going on, other than he was tried as a juvenile and was in mm-hmm. detention. Um, but but enough healing had passed, and enough I think strength and progression in my life had passed that I decided, yeah, I, I'll I'll meet with him. Um, and so I, I uh, went out to the detention facility, uh, was introduced to a room. It was just he and I and, and the counselor. And he had prepared a list of questions that um, to help him with, with understanding the impact of the decisions he had made that night. Mm-hmm. And so were there questions of, you know, what, what was your wife like? Uh, what were your kids like? Um, how, has it been really hard to not have, you know, be with him? And so I was able mm-hmm. to tell him as frankly and honestly as I could how much devastation and pain that I had gone through. And and to this point, he didn't know you had forgiven him. At this point, well, he, they, only that he what he had read. Just you know, only um, there you know there were some media reports about the forgiveness and, and right. what he had heard through his family, but but no direct contact between he and I. Absolutely, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you know after all these questions about my family, the counselor said, "Is there anything else you want to ask, Mister Williams?" And that's when he asked. You know, he just like leaned forward, crumpled up his his paper, or refolded it, uh, and then just looked in my eyes and just said, "After everything I did to your family, how is it that you can forgive me?" Mm. You know, he couldn't get his head around how does someone do that? How does someone let it go? Uh, I don't think he could forgive himself for sure, but uh, just to think that somebody else had, had forgiven him, he wanted to know: Is it real? Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. and, and how does one do that? It was hard for him in that moment. I did ask him, I said, you know, pick a date, let it go, and put this behind you. So I did give the opportunity for him to do the same thing I had done, to not let that experience mm-hmm. be the defining moment of his life, to, uh, to, to, you know, to make something of his life based on what he went through mm-hmm. uh, versus letting this be the, the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's one thing that that I would also offer up that has helped me to keep moving forward and has helped me to go through those those moments of pain was in in taking this path of letting it go. I've had the opportunity to help others who are stuck, who can't let it go. And each time I'm able to do that and to work with people to help them to let it go, to forgive, or to at least to, to regain that control in their lives, and I see their progress, mm-hmm. it helps me understand that what I went through wasn't for nothing that there are good things that have come from this tragedy. There are people whose lives have been changed from this tragedy, including my own. I wanted this young man's life to be changed in the same way. I wanted his to be a, um, to become a life that was exemplary so that, you know, to, to his children and to those he knew when they asked, you know, how is it that you got to this point? How is it that you're able to, to accomplish these things? He would look mm-hmm. back and say, you know, I had a choice to make as a young man. And I chose to make something of my life to pay tribute to uh, to the the pain and injury I've caused uh, this family. So how is Cameron? Because uh, now he's got to be about thirty. Yeah, so, so he was just a couple of months shy of eighteen. Yeah, when it happened. I assume you're still in touch with him. How how is he? Has he embraced that same outlook on life that, that you've shared, shared with him? him? Absolutely. So um, I've made a point of, of keeping in touch with him. He's made a point of keeping in touch with me, actually. So he was released when he was about 20 and a half. They only hold him until they're 21 in the detention facility. Um, and, and staying true to that commitment he made to, to let it go, he uh, got married in 2012. Uh, he invited me to come down. Um, to, in fact, an interesting kind of highlight of my life in a very odd sort of way. 
was watching he and his wife cut the cake, you know, mm. the, the oh, rice yeah. thrown at them to, to start their lives together. You know, I realized that if, if his life could be saved, you know, I, it's been difficult to, to, to have it, you know, on the, the back of my family's experience. But, you know, the more good that has come out of that experience in 2007, it just, um, it just makes it uh, less of a tragedy. Uh, and so, and then since then, they've been blessed with two little children, um, and they're just raising their family. So he's doing very exceptionally well, actually, and, mm, and is continuing to stay true to that commitment. That's yeah. amazing. It's beautiful. You, you touched on two very important things that that resonated with me. Is that you know often when people say they put things in a box, it sounds like you're suppressing something, as you mm-hmm. said. But you know everyone has their own pace and path and journey. And your um, relationship with Cameron didn't start right away. You were able to process by yourself first and then talk to him. And I think that's important to note that even though you forgive someone, you're still, um, you you still have a right to process it at, at a pace that works for you and your heart. Um, and also the, uh, the other point that really resonated with me was that just because you forgive someone, just because you've let it go, it, it does not mean that you do not feel pain and that you will not have those ups and downs. I think that's important for people to hear because when, when someone tells you to let something go, it feels like, oh no, you're trying to take, you know, the feeling and emotion away from it. And like, it's, especially if it's something you've lost, like you want to honor those lost with your feelings and emotions. Like you want to give them that time and, and energy, but, but yeah, to your point, there is, there is something to be said about being in extreme sadness and extreme negativity for long periods of time. Like that doesn't serve that doesn't Anywhere. serve a purpose or doesn't serve the community around you who, who are still here. Absolutely. So, so the other great thing about that kind of notion about the box is that, uh, and to your point, is that it gave me an opportunity to address the box when I felt um, ready, when I felt yeah. you know, healthy enough, because I was definitely not healthy enough to, to address it in the, you know, the first uh, 12 months. Uh, but the other wonderful thing about that notion of the box is that it freed me from worrying about all that was going on in the box. And, and by mm. that, I mean the trial, the certification mm. to see if, if he was going to stand trial as an adult facing 25 years or as a juvenile facing just a few years in the detention facility. It was very freeing to not have to worry about any of those decisions. In fact, when the judge asked me to stand in court, you know, he wanted my opinion. I just said, look, I support you, whatever you say, you know, whatever you want. I mean, that's, that's why he gets paid the big bucks. Mm-hmm. I was not going to insert myself in that because I didn't want to carry the burden, the additional burden when I couldn't, and I didn't even have the strength to carry hardly mm-hmm. my own. I didn't want to carry the burden of, of inserting myself in that decision. You know, what if he got right. 25 years and he goes to jail and he gets murdered in jail or something, you know, suddenly I'm like, mm-hmm. well, did I cause that? You know, was I part of that? Yeah, yeah. I didn't want any of that culpability. And so it was very freeing to me to not have to worry about anything that was going on with him because of that you know, notion of the box. I think it's also very freeing for those that struggle to forgive themselves. Mm-hmm. That, you know, to your point, it's, it's not about getting rid of it because you can't, you've got these memories, you've got these regrets, you've got, you know, we better than anyone knows everything we did, right? To cause mm-hmm. the, the, the regret, um, the, the stuff that we wish we could forgive ourselves for. But putting it in a box is just a way of like, you know, I'll deal with this later when I'm stronger when I'm more healthy, when I've let it go and I've progressed a little bit further in my life, then I'll, I'll take it out and deal with these, these mm-hmm. you know, memories or the, the, the people mm-hmm. I've heard or whatever it is. But for now, if, if, if needed, boy, that box is a wonderful place to start, yeah. To, yeah. to let it go and move forward. So your, your two boys who survived the accident, I mean, I can't imagine what they went through. How have they coped with all of this sudden loss? 
Sure. So, so there was well, one young, uh, there was my oldest that wasn't in the car with us that night. And then my uh, youngest at the time um, was in the car. So, so the oldest, it was, you know, a very difficult process of, of healing. I mean, he's at a basketball game and then all of a sudden he, get, he has you know, friends telling him, you've got to come very quickly. There's been a horrible accident. And then he's rushed up to the hospital and he's told his, his mom and his two closest siblings are dead. I mean, what a brutal, brutal experience to go through for him. Um, but, he has just been my best friend. Um, the The bond that we have through that tragedy is just immeasurable. Uh, and with my youngest son as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has been a long process. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's an understatement. Yeah, you know, it, it has been difficult for them to, to go through it. It's been very, very challenging. I think the one thing that has helped us to at least successfully get to this point um, is just not giving up on one another, just Mm -hmm. pressing forward through the difficult times, the grief, the pain, the sadness, and then really enjoying and relishing the, uh, the happy times that we've been able to have together. So my oldest has since married last year, a a beautiful woman named Ariel and, uh, and there's, they've started their family together and, and then my youngest is going to college now. So they're growing up fast. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And how, how does forgiveness look every day? Um, like what is the daily practice that reinforces this value so that when things do happen, you know, you have this muscle that is, is exercised on the daily. Absolutely. So, um, for me, it's a daily exercise of realizing and reminding myself that I'm in control, that I can choose how to react to things. Um, a simple example of this is that as a, um, you know, I, you read so many stories about people just with road rage you know, and, mm. and, and, you know, I'm not an aggressive driver. I just, um, but at the same time, I realize that there, there are people that could get upset with, you know, an unintended maneuver I make or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so if I see somebody do something that, that irritates them or that I did that maybe irritated them, you know, I, I picture them as, as having a, uh, you know, a really a bad day. <laughs> and I only do that just as an exercise to kind of retain control. Instead of reacting in a negative way, I, I try and envision the best way that I could react to a situation. And then when it does occur, I, I you know, I kind of pre-commit, as it were, to, mm. uh, to, to, to choosing that path of action. Um, mm. it, it's just incredibly helpful because it, I just find that I have a lot more patience with people, a lot more patience with processes you know, I do a lot of travel for work, so uh, and travel can be very stressful for people. I just mm-hmm. it helps me approach things in a way that that I'm choosing to be at peace with my surroundings. I'm choosing to be of service to those with whom I interact, and I'm choosing to simplify the uh, number of of things I have to process in my life. I don't want to be processing anger and frustration and work and mm. everything else. I just want to keep it very simple, and by staying in control of my emotions. Uh, which is really what forgiveness has come to mean to me. Um, boy, it makes my life so much more peace-filled. Mm. It's wonderful. Honestly, such a great role model for all of us and that idea of practicing patience as well. I mean, I, I still catch myself. I know from time to time I can get worked up over something and then <laughs> Lin- Linda is my reminder of patience. And Yeah, and I think just to come at you know anything with, from a place of compassion because you mm-hmm. never know what's going on in other people's lives um, just to give them that benefit of the doubt. And mm-hmm. and anyway, it's, you know, a tiny interaction. It, it passes and it's gone and you wish them the best and, and, that's, and uh, you have a more peaceful day. Well, and also <laughs> your family too. I mean, uh, such a great 
role model for both your kids and, and how they've grown up to be able to show them that sort of patience. Have they forgiven Cameron as well? Yes, they have. So um, they both chose to let it go. It was on their timelines. Uh, you know, as I look at my family, extended family, you know, everyone kind of had their own timeline of when. Mm-hmm. But it was important, and I realized it was important to let them have that timeline. So I really didn't force my kids of, you know, hey, you got to do this today. Let it go. You know, I just, mm-hmm. when they were ready, when they were ready to process it, you know, um, um, yeah. But, but having talked to them since, you know, they, they chose to follow the, the example. There's a positivity and there's an energy that w- will be felt by anyone around you with living your life this way. And can you tell us a little bit about your your years after uh, what happened and you're now married and you have this amazing person in your life. So tell us about that part of your journey. Oh, sure. So it was about uh, a year after the crash, I was introduced to a, a triathlete. And I only say that because the other, I guess, way out I coped was through distraction. Um, you know, then that was the back to the grief and everything else because it could get so overwhelming. I, I knew I had to kind of thrust myself into other activities or else I had nothing to do but to sit and think about it. So I got into triathloning, which, you know, I was horrible at, but it was just me doing this on my own. <laughs> um, and I kind of wanted somebody to do this with. And so I reached out to some friends and some, uh, uh, some people that knew my first wife and I really well uh, that had moved next door to this, this woman who was a widow uh, who her husband had passed away in 2006. And they said, hey, she does triathlons. Maybe she would like to do one with you. So, so that's how it kind of started is, is uh, hey, would you want to do a triathlon together? Um, which which is also funny because she, was, she had done them for some time and she was kind of done with them. So I caught her on the trail end and we <laughs> just tried to get into it. A pickup line you thought you'd never use. Hey, you want to you <laughs> right. go do a triathlon together? <laughs> that's right. Um, so, so uh, you know, it just clicked from day one. Uh, you know, it, it, talking to someone that had gone through a difficult experience, it just, you know, we had that connection for sure. But, but uh, you know, on many levels, it just felt like this was a friend um, that I hadn't known. I just had, had just met. And so it felt wonderful. And we got married in, um, uh, and about two years after that, we had a, our first child together, uh, little Emma. And then uh, a couple of, about 18 months after that, we had another uh, daughter, uh, Caroline. So uh, they're now, um, wait, what, nine, 11. And, and then she had two children from her first marriage, um, Arlie and Parker. So we, we've got kids in grade school, high school, middle school, and college. They're all over the place. <laughs> you got a full house, six kids in there. But, it's a full uh, house. Uh, speaking of triathlon... I never want to do one. <laughs> Drew was, I, did you see the look Drew just gave me? Like, no, don't really? say it. Don't say it. I, um, I've always, I'm fascinated by it because I love the idea of it, but I don't think I would, it would take a lot for me to, to get through a triathlon. So I can't actually swim. So yeah, well, and I only did the sprint distance, which is the shortest distance. And, and so she, my wife and I are very into mountain biking and skiing and outdoor activities. And, and honestly, I think since we've been married, I don't think we've done a triathlon since. So we've kind of ditched it as well. <laughs> it was the hook though. <laughs> it was the hook. It got us together. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, we like to wrap up with what we call our speed round. If you're ready for some hard hitting questions. Absolutely. Fire away. <laughs> what song reminds you of home? Oh man, I was a huge Genesis fan growing up. So um, it's, there's a song called It's Gonna Get Better. And that's, that's, that reminds me of, of, boy, home when I was growing up to home now. Mm. What's your perfect Sunday morning at home? 
Oh, perfect kind of good morning at home is uh, some scrambled eggs and sitting on the back porch and listening to the birds and, and realizing that I've got a day of, of rest. Mm. Amazing. I might do scrambled eggs tonight for dinner. <laughs> What's your most vivid memory of home? Uh, commotion. And, and that sounds funny, but with six kids, I love it. I love just the commotion that happens when kids are coming in and out um, of the kitchen and just catching the little bits and parts of their day. I love yeah. it. Name three things on your bedside table. Oh, uh, t- typically the iPhone charger. <laughs> uh, I do have some scriptures there as well. Um, and then a box of Kleenex. I tend to be a bit emotional and a, 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 a crybaby when I read some good things. So got to have mm. those close. You know what? Me too. We're, we're the same here. <laughs> well, I just want to say a huge thank you. Like It means so much to us for you to share your story and inspire us. Um, and I think inspiring us to, uh, to practice forgiveness is so important. So thank you so much. Thank oh, you you're so very much, welcome. Chris. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. I definitely think after speaking to Chris, it really makes me value our family and our connections with with friends and family. Yeah. And the simple lesson of just let go. I know it's not a simple thing to just switch on and off, but it is something we can practice. And I know I can practice to just let some things go because other things are more important, like our peace and our health and our loving relationships. Well, I think holding on to any resentment or hate for somebody, no matter what it is that happened, I mean, that can really eat away at you, mm-hmm. like your, ourselves. Oh, I know. Yeah. And <laughs> I, that's why I thank you, Chris, so much for everything that you've done to help us understand through your story uh, and your journey. So yeah, thank you so much to everyone who's listening. We really appreciate you as a part of our at-home family. You're our homies as well. And to our team who helps us make this podcast possible, Brandon Angelino, Annalie Bell, Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis, West Friend, Chris Cobain, Jessica Bryant-Harvey, and Nicole Schachter. Our theme music is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And music is composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to hit us up on social media at At Home. Leave a comment, DM us. We want to hear from you. Have a good one. Bye, everyone. Love you. Thanks to you. Thanks to you, boo. Love you. Love you. Love you.